Entrepreneur MBA podcast purpose is to help existing business owners grow their companies past the $10 million in revenue per year benchmark. Here is your host, Stephen Halasnik. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Halasnik, and I'm co-founder of Financing Solutions. Financing Solution provides easy-to-set-up lines of credit for small businesses, and I will be your host for today's Entrepreneur MBA podcast. If interested in learning more about a business line of credit, which I would highly recommend, I've had it my, my whole career, I always made sure I had a backup plan, please visit us at fscreditline.com. That's FS as in Financing Solutions, creditline.com. Over the last 25 years, I have built six companies in the $5 million to $25 million range, including two companies on the Inc. 500 fastest growing companies in the United States. I love learning from people with business experience. And today, I'm excited to be speaking with Andrew Schwartz from Stein Sperling. Andrew is a principal in the business law department of Stein Sperling in Rockville, Maryland, based law firm with offices throughout the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. Andrew, Andrew concentrates his practice on business, employment, and real estate law, which includes the drafting and negotiating of contracts partnership agreements, including operating agreements and shareholder agreements, business entity formation and corporate governance, business disputes, and buying and selling businesses. He is frequently asked to speak to business owners on topics such as business entity choice, navigating business controversies and disputes, and practical and legal aspects of business succession planning and employment matters. Andrew, welcome to today's Entrepreneur MBA podcast. Stephen, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Good. I, I, before we even get to today's topic, which is a very, very robust topic, uh, uh, if somebody is in another state like California, does it make sense for them to kind of contact you? Yes. And um, we can help. You know, We have attorneys that are licensed all over the country, and uh, we can certainly help advise on the issue. If it becomes a local issue, we may need to get uh, local counsel involved. Uh, but on general business advice and matters, uh, we can help. Okay, good. So today's topic is uh, successful business through growth management operation and succession. Um, and so, you know, let me start off by asking you, you work with a lot of small businesses, uh, correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, what, from an attorney standpoint, what's the biggest mistake that you see that small business owners make from your observation? Sure. Uh, great question. Usually it's not getting the right entity uh, set up the proper way at the outset and not having, and if you have partners, not having the proper agreements, whether it's a shareholders agreement or an operating agreement. I've seen way too many times people are excited about their new venture they just go online, do some Google search and say, all right, this looks good for the type of entity, start operating, and then for whatever reason, think, oh, I need to go speak with an attorney. And a lot of times it's not the proper entity for what they're doing and or they don't have the proper agreements, like I said, with their partner and trying to undo that or unwind that early on ends up costing them more money than if they had reached out to an attorney to begin with to do it the proper way, it would have saved them the time and money and the frustration. What, uh, so what, 
what have you seen the ramifications of not having a, a company prop? Now, when we talk about setup property, we're talking about, is it an LLC? Is it an S corp? Is it a C corp? What, what is it? Uh, what are the ramifications that you've seen in practicality of a business that has grown and it wasn't set up correctly? What, what happens? Sure. So for me, the most often issue I've seen is when they go to sell right? Or bringing on a partner is they've been operating, you know, in under one type of entity, call it a C corp or an S corp, and they go to sell or they're bringing on investors. And in some instances, it's difficult to bring on investors based on the type of entity you have. There's certain restrictions if you're an S corp, for example. I've also seen people have real estate investments and they own it as an S corp or a C corp. In reality, most times if someone's holding real estate, it should be in an LLC. So before we can take the next step, whether it's a sale or bringing on investors, we sometimes have to backtrack and unwind what's been done for a period of time and how they've been running the company and kind of restructure it the right way so that we can then take the next steps um, for a sale or bringing on investors. So, you know, and certain investors only want to invest in a certain type of company. And so if you're not that type of entity, when you start to grow, and yes, you can make changes along the way, but when you're bringing on investors, it takes additional time, documentation, and costs to do it the right way to take on that investor's money. So give me an example of like, you, you know, you, 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 let's say somebody is an S corp already, uh, you know, or they could be whatever uh, right. type of corporation they are. And they have to make a change. I mean, as me, who I mean, I always just plow far, forward. So I'm like, okay, I'll worry about that later. All right. Which is probably 90% of the business owners out there, right? Correct. Um, it's why we do what we do. And, uh, and so what, how difficult is it to switch a company? Sure. I mean, can't, can I just take the LLC, open up another company with an S corp and, or, you know, whatever. And, uh, just start doing business under the escort. Right. So potentially, right? So the first part is what do, what entity we need to identify what entity we currently are and what is it we need to be. And under each jurisdiction there's usually statutory provisions that provide for how we convert, for example, from a partnership to an LLC, all right? Or a corporation to an LLC. Not all jurisdictions permit that. Okay, so depending on where you're doing business, you have to go through the legal requirements and statutes to see if we can do that. Now, to answer your question on if we've got an LLC and I just want to move the assets over, the issue is it sounds simple to just form a new entity and start operating. And believe me, plenty of people do. But the issue is you've got potentially assets owned by that other entity. So how do we move those over, right? There's tax consequences. So we can do what's called a contribution agreement or a merger somehow um, and make it a wholly owned subsidiary. But each of those requires certain steps, certain legal documentation, and also consultation with a client's accountant to make sure there's no adverse tax consequences. Um, so we gotta be mindful, believe me, a lot of people just move it, start operating, and then you know whether they need bank financing or they have a contract or they wanna sell, that's when they realize, uh-oh, I didn't do this right. Um, so it could be assets you have, contracts, for example, government contracts are assets. And so you may have to what they call novate, assign the contracts over to the new entity. Uh, you need to make sure that you've got 
insurance for that new entity. So there's a whole host of issues, including licensing, things that you need to think about more so than just, hey, I was operating under this entity. Now I'm going to operate under the other one. So let's take this one step further. And that is uh, you already have a, an existing business, $3 million in sales, uh, in revenue. And, uh, and so from your experience, what, what have you seen most often? Forget about the incorporation for a second and how it was sure. incorporated. What do you see the biggest issues that usually come down to partner agreements? Yep. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah. So the big and part of what I do a lot of is business dispute work, right? And so we want to be take preventative action to grow the company and be mindful of that. So the biggest issue I see is not having the right operating agreement or having an agreement that leaves out a whole host of issues. And so it's a partner disputes. When the companies are growing, they're becoming successful. Undoubtedly, if there's two or more people, one person is usually working harder than the other, right? But that they're splitting the profits and distributions equally. And at some point in time, the person that's taken 50% of the profits, but is working, you know, 90 hours versus the guy working 40 hours, there's going to be an issue. He's going to be upset and say, I'm pulling all the weight. Why are we sharing the money? And so the operating agreement addresses that, right? And how do we deal with disputes? And can we make disproportionate distributions to counteract the value someone's contributing? Um, so that's one part of it, right? Partnership disputes. And the other one is just not even the partners, but having the right management employees, the right people running the company and managing it so that you can be out there developing the business. If you're in the business, in the weeds on a day-to-day basis, it's difficult for you to be growing the business as well. And so it's important to have key people, employees that you trust, that are committed to you um, to help grow the business with you. I assume that when people are calling you a large majority of the time, well, I shouldn't say that. There's a is there usually a problem when they're calling you? Sometimes. So there's, it's about half and half, right? Some people call me and say, uh-oh, I didn't do this right, or I've got an employee issue, a partner dispute, we don't have any documents. On other instances, it's someone that has done some research and says, you know what, before I go down this road and start, I need to speak with an attorney, kind of figure out what I need to be doing and thinking about. So I would tell you it's about half and half. Yeah, like what? What is your? I, I know I read what your specialty sure. is, but um, what do you t- tend to do the most type of work in? Right, I would say uh, ownership and operating agreements, shareholder agreements. So essentially, partnership agreements. We act as outside general counsel. I act as outside general counsel for my, you know, small, mid-sized clients that you know don't have their own in-house counsel, and we'll do mostly at the beginning shareholder agreements, succession plan. Right, we've got family businesses, uh, and they want to bring it to the next generation. And how do we do that? Right, through gifting of shares, purchasing of shares. What happens if there's some siblings involved in the business? Some may not be. How do we address the family dynamics uh, to keep the company growing through the next generation? So there's a lot of that. When, when you know you you've come across a lot of different business owners, and you know from your perspective, I I, I think. Maybe sometimes you can see that this owner is on, like this one owner is on the ball and another one is kind of loosey goosey, not really. And I don't mean from a legal standpoint. I just, you know, 
so from your observation, yeah. when you look at somebody who's running some businesses that are really, really good, what have you noticed about them? Right. So I think, like you said, there's different personalities, right? I've worked with type A, a hard charger, everything's buttoned up and they've been successful. I've also worked with in certain other industries where they're more hands off. And like you said, loosey goosey, more laissez faire, but still have put a team around them that can advise them and that they trust to really run the day to day manage. I have one client in particular who doesn't even have his own laptop, hugely successful business, but has hired two to three people to manage the day to day, keep them informed. And he relies on his professional advisors, me as his attorney, his wealth manager, um, some insurance people. And so the key for all of these, whatever their personality is, is surrounding themselves with the right group of people and advisors that they can rely on to make those decisions. So, you know, each person is different in personality and how they approach their, you know, business and dealing with their employees. But across the board, I've consistently see, you know, a set group of small team members that they rely on to help manage and run the day-to-day business. Yeah. I'm going to add to that too. You know, I, I, I know a lot of business owners, right? And I agree. I echo your comment that every single one of them runs their business in a different way. Right. And there's, there's kind of like, I remember when I first started my first company, I, I, before I started it, I was like, okay, let me learn about how business owners work and how they, uh, the best ones, how they, what they do. And then I'll mimic that. Right. And I think there is some truth to that. I mean, there is there like you're, it's, I call it high probability. And that is what are the things that, that I need to be doing that give me the highest probability of success. Right. Right. So, so an example would be right. If someone has a business that's 10 years old and you don't look at your financials on a monthly basis, uh, I don't think you're going to grow to be right. a very good company, right? It's a given, right? Now, will you, you might find that one out of 100 or one out of 1,000 of a person who doesn't look at their financial statements and grows a bigger company, uh, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, even then, <laughs> I think it's going to be rough. So, you know, you try to do the hyper. So, but my, but my, my point being is, is this, um, there's a lot of different types of owners, which I agree with you on. Um, but there are certain things that are a given, right. That, that allows you to jump to the next level. Um, and so, and so let's jump really fast forward uh, to the people that you've met who have been, uh, who, who, uh, build their companies to sell, mm-hmm. right. Or are selling their companies. Right. I mean, what percentage of the times have you, have you actually had conversations with people who say, I want to sell my company, but I'm not doing it right now. What should I be doing? Yeah. So that conversation since COVID has started, has significantly increased. Wow. Mm. Um, so, you know, I do a lot of M&A work on a daily basis, but I think throughout COVID, it made certain of my client business owners reevaluate what it is they want to do with their life, you know, and some of them really flourished through COVID, certain industries, some struggled. Uh, but a majority of mine 
given the uh, nature of the industry, have really grown exponentially. And so I think they think, you know, there's people out there with a lot of cash and looking to acquire and the values of these businesses have also significantly increased. And so that conversation has come up more, a lot more recently. And so what we talk about is, are you prepared to sell, right? What is it you're looking to do? Just get out of the industry completely? Are you looking to bring on a partner and so that you can step back over a period of time or just an outright sale? And so we need to position, you know, is the company ready to do that? Do you have all your ducks in a row, the paperwork are your, you know, you have your list of assets, your contracts, you know, assignable that you have, um, your IP, intellectual property, is that trademarked? Um, do we have all of that lined up? Your corporate documents, governance, officers, are your employees um, bound by employment agreements with restrictive covenants? So we wanna kind of take a, an index of what we have currently and whether we need to do some cleanup work in order to position for sale, because as you likely know, during any you know acquisition and due diligence, that's what a buyer is going to be looking for, you know, and they want to look at your financials, are they up to date, and so forth. So we got to position the company, make sure all the ducks in a row, the paperwork is there before we start sharing information. And then if you have a potential buyer or you've got you know a broker that's working on your behalf. The first step before any discussions take place is have a non-disclosure agreement executed between you and that potential buyer. That's number one. And then we can start sharing, you know, information and then uh, move to like a letter of intent phase. Um, so that's kind of the first initial steps. Um, you know, seek out an attorney, seek out, you know, an advisor of some sorts that does, you know, M&A work, a financial advisor, as it may be, um, before you get too down the road and start looking at that. I've had a lot of clients get very excited um, and just think of a number of a purchase price. I had one client not too long ago that someone approached him, threw out a number. He hadn't done his own homework, the seller, and agreed to the purchase price. And then we started discussing, and this was before I was involved, started discussing, looking at his financials, also spoke with his accountant. It turns out the purchase uh, valuation of the company was significantly more. And then we had to kind of unwind it, go back to the buyer and say, look, even though the letter of intent sets forth the material terms, it's non-binding. But we had to say, you know, based on our review, it was a low ball number. We want to uh, do a deal with you, but the number's got to be X, which is a couple million more. And they wanted to reevaluate and they ultimately walked away. But the client was okay with that. And we had talked about that, knowing that he was going to get, you know, a low ball offer. Um, and so, you know, he'll be able to sell it for his number when the time is right. Yeah. Uh, let's, uh, I, I think one of the things that I've seen that, um, you know, I haven't sold my businesses yet for a significant number and that's, that is going to come. I have one business right now that is a sellable business that eventually is going to sell and it's going to be a nice situation, but I don't, I think it, I've always had the attitude that it's always great to build your business with the intent that at some point it's going to sell because then you look at your business the right way, even from an operations standpoint. And in other words is when you sell your business, are, are you going to want to go with that company? Right? Probably not. Okay. And, and so that means that you need to build a business 
that is, you know, after a certain revenue standpoint, where it's going on its own, right? Because the company that's buying you doesn't want to buy you, right? <laughs> okay, right. they they want they're going to want you probably out or a transition period, right? Exactly. So your company becomes more valuable if it's able to be run, and also if it's able to run without key people. Right. So I always felt that technology based businesses uh, that uh, not even so technology, but, but companies that technology is doing the heavy lifting where your lead generation program is in place. It's not you picking up the phone, making relationships, you know, that you have the lead generation program in place. It's marketing. You know, if you build the company with the idea of, hey, what will somebody want in my business? Uh uh, if I'm going to sell that, it, it just, even if you don't sell it, it makes your company more valuable. It makes it less harder on you to, to run your business. So th- that would be my advice as well. I mean, it's something that you would agree with. Yes, uh, absolutely. Steven, you know, because a buyer, like you said, wants your assets and what you've built over all these years. And if you're the only person that can do everything and you don't have the technology to help run it, you're not, I mean, how are you going to sell it and get out if they need you to run the business? And there may be, you know, a short transition period, but like you said, ultimately they want you out and they want you tied up with a non-compete, right? So you can't go start a new business and a non-solicitation, take all the customers other than otherwise, what is it they're buying? Right. And so, the company needs to stand on its own. And yes, there could be some goodwill associated with you individually. And you see that more in some professional practices, medical practices, law firms, financial advisors, accounting firms that I've worked with. But for other types of industries, um, technology, pharmaceutical, you know, IT, whatever, construction, the company's got to run on its own without you. Um, otherwise you're not, it's not going to be that valuable to a buyer. Let's talk about employment law. What is the number one thing that you see that small businesses get in trouble with in regards to employees? Yeah. Uh, not treating the employees fairly across the board and not offering the same kind of benefits. Um, and it may not be done intentionally and, you know, look, I know I have clients and I know out there. Certain bosses, employers favor certain employees. Maybe some of the ones that are more higher performing have demonstrated a vested interest, but then there may other might be another employee that's good that shows up, but there's clearly kind of favorites being played. And that just that employee that it doesn't get that preferential treatment starts thinking, oh, something else is going on. You know, they're discriminating against me. And so it's important to offer the same benefits across the board, treat everyone fairly across the board, uh, whether it's time off, whether it's bonuses, whatever the policy in place is, it's got to be applied equally across the board. Uh, Another thing I see often is people don't give their employees employment agreements. It doesn't need to be an exhaustive long agreement, but there should certainly be certain provisions in there, right? Whether it's an at-will employment, say that, whether it's a term, the ability to terminate them without cause, meaning no reason or for cause. And then also have restrictive covenants, confidentiality, a non-compete, a non-solicitation. And depending on the jurisdiction, those provisions need to be crafted certain ways in order to be enforceable. And tying that in with kind of a sale, like we were talking about, 
one of the things I've seen often is buyers want their employees to have employment agreements that have non-solicitation mm. and non-compete. Number one is it protects the company and it protects the buyer. Like I said, you know, if they're buying a company and all these employees can leave and start their own company, then what is a buyer buying? And then also it adds value to the company um, because these employees can't just leave and start their own company. So the key, one of the biggest issues I see is em employers don't have the necessary agreements in place um, for their employees. And, you know, you got to be thinking, like you said, for a future for a sale, that is one way to do it. Have your employees sign employment agreements. What happens, and I, I, I agree with you, and I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's funny because it's really hard to go back once you have your team and then go back and say, oh, hey, I want you guys now to sign an employment agreement uh, and a non-compete. Uh, it just causes lots of issues because sure. it sends up a red flag. Like, why all of a sudden are you looking at this? Um, now, you can give some answers like, well, listen, before we weren't really, you know, I didn't know I needed this and this is important and everybody who's coming on board now has to, has to sign this. I want to make sure we're consistent across the board, you know, those type of things. Um, but what, what, um, what happens if you, uh, uh, have an employee who refuses to sign a non-compete agreement where you're getting everybody to sign not, no, that wasn't my question. My question is, what happens if you have people who are coming on and you kind of get organized and you start saying, you know, for now on, all the new people, they're going to have employment agreements, right? If you get that from those people, but then the other people who are working there now will not, right. you don't get it from them. What happens? Right. So that happens all the time and it's an issue. Um, and it's not so much an issue from the new employees, it's the old ones that want to leave or some issue happens, a dispute over something. And, you know, there's certain common law rules, meaning, you know, safeguarding confidential proprietary information um, so that they'd still be bound by potentially a duty of confidentiality. I didn't know there's, know there's common law like that. Yeah. Huh. And, but um, it's what we call fiduciary duties, but the reality is you're not going to be able to tie them up and prevent them from, you know, soliciting a customer or, you know, preventing them from competing with a company. And it's an issue, you know, one way potentially around it, <coughs> excuse me, like you said, is maybe offering them a bonus, right, in exchange for signing it. Um, if that person is truly valuable to you, typically we see that if it's like a sales and account representative or a salesperson of some sort that really has the one to one boots on the ground relationship with your customers and that you could be significantly damaged if you leave, that may be worthwhile saying, hey, I'll give you a bonus of X dollars if you sign this uh, to tie them up. Now, they may still refuse. And, you know, that's a business decision you'll need to make as to whether you do them. You could theoretically, if they're at will employees, have the right to terminate them. Um, but if you terminate them, then you don't have a restrictive covenant and they could leave and take your employees and can be damaged. So you got to think through how we deal with that situation, you know, paying them, terminating them. And there's different avenues to pursue. How many times should a small business owner, you know, we're talking like three, $5 million in revenue be in contact with their attorney. Sure. I would say, you know, once a quarter, I did check in, uh, you know, have an update. Maybe there's, you know, they've 
acquired a business and didn't even tell you, you know, or brought on a partner. I can't tell you how many times they'll say, hey, oh, by the way, I don't think I ever told you, but a couple months ago, I brought on this partner. And I say, well, how'd that happen? You know, how did he get his stock or his ownership interest? We got to yeah. document that. Did we think through that? So I'd say once a quarter, that would cover it. And then as needed, uh, if issues arise, um, you know, whether it's a change in ownership, there could be a payment dispute, depending on the nature of the industry and employee. So it's good to just kind of check in quarterly, I think. I know with my, uh, my own attorney, um, and I do have a couple of them depending on the situation, but I always, let's look, I always look at it like, so they, they try to, they always make sure I have like, I don't know if it's board meeting notes or, you know, yearly right. documents to show that, I don't know, you tell me, I don't know yeah. what is with the Yeah, it's the corp, corporate minutes. So when you're a corporation, uh, on an annual basis, you're supposed to have kind of an election of officers and directors and approve other corporate actions, whether it's a line of credit, you took out a new lease and approve compensation. Um, but let's be real here. You know, you are all business owners are busy running their day to day business, doing their thing. They're not thinking about these kind of corporate minutes. And so what happens is there will be an event that something happens, whether it's a bank, they get old bank for a loan or a line of credit. The bank's going to ask for your minutes and corporate documents. And so a lot of times clients will say, Andrew, I haven't done that. Can you help me out? And so we'll prepare what's called catch up minutes, right? Um, and so that we'll approve actions for the last couple of years, try and figure out when the last time you did corporate minutes, have the election for the new officers, directors, and go through if there's been any kind of major corporate changes, um, approve issuance of stock if need be, approve an acquisition of a company, bringing on a partner, and so forth. And so that can be that year's corporate minutes and kind of catch up, bring to forward uh, what's happened in the last couple of years. Now, what happens if you don't do that? Uh, nothing. You don't get into trouble. There's no mm -hmm. agency that says, you know, oh my God, Stephen, you didn't do that. You know, you're going to be fine. But it's part of good management of your business, keeping your corporate records, you know, up to date. Um, you know, it's important to have it. And that's part of kind of the sale part, right? Having things lined up and ready to go when you are prepared to sell. And so you can do that cleanup at that time. Um, but it, it's important to do it. But at the end of the day, you know, no one's going to sue you over that. You're not going to be fined by anybody. Um, but it's important when you do have partners to do it. So everyone knows, you know, we approve this action at this period of time. And these are current officers and directors and current stockholders. Tell me the top one or two things that you've seen issues with taxes. Yeah. Business owners. Uh, so biggest one is people just not filing their taxes. Uh, you would be amazed how many successful business owners I've worked with and know of that just don't pay their taxes. Um, and, you know, depending on the type of industry, it could be a, a single member LLC. So that's typically filed on their Schedule C uh, so their personal tax return. And so they may not report all of the income um, or partnerships, you know, and it always amazes me. Um, they just don't file um, at a federal level on a state level. And it gets tricky at a state level. And I see it more often at a state level that people just didn't know they needed to file, you know, an annual franchise tax, for example, in the District of Columbia 
or a corporation tax. They just file their federal, you know, partnership 1065. Um, and so that would be the biggest one. And then the other one would be the schedule K1s, you know, issuing to their shareholder or their members uh, in an LLC. Um, so most people need that, or not most, everyone needs that to report on their own individual return. So the company needs to, um, typically by March, end of March each year, issue to all the members their Schedule K-1s. Okay. So last thoughts on, on the things that you've noticed the most that business owners that, you know, over a million, over 3 million, under 10 million are, you know, really need to be careful of. Yeah. I think depending on the nature of industry, having contracts in place with your clients and customers, um, and you know that talks about when you're going to get paid, what happens if you don't get paid, is there an attorney's fees provision so that when you do need to come to a lawyer and say, you know, John Doe ABC LLC hasn't paid me, I'm going to say, well, first thing I'm going to do is let me look at your contract. What rights and remedies do you have in your contract to go after them? and understand why they haven't paid. And so the big kind of overarching thought, thought here is have contracts in place that provide you with remedies um, or limitation liability. If you're providing services as a consultant, you know, you want to limit your exposure um, to your client and customer. And how do we do that? Through indemnifications, limitation liabilities, um, and so forth. Yeah, I, uh, you know, it, you brought up some really good points here. And like, I just remember that. So the difference between my first company and my seventh company, you know, it's like the difference between day and night. And that is, you know, I get in there. Uh, it's, I really don't know what I'm doing. Uh, uh, you know, employment contracts, client contracts, uh, setting up the right type of corporation, you know, doing all these things. And, you know, you just kind of plow forward, right? But the, the thing that I learned over a period of time is you, you having a great lawyer who has lots of experience in working with business owners, having a great accountant uh, who has lots of experience working in tax matters or working with business owners. Uh, you, know, I'm, you know, I'm trying to think of some other potential advisors a mentor, potentially someone who's got lots of experience in running a business. You just going to them and saying, what, this is what my business does. This is how it works. Share with them. Don't even ask them to don't even wait for your lawyer, for your accountant or your mentor, or whoever to ask questions about how your business works. Explain that to them. Tell them in detail. I mean, I know it costs money. Okay. Because you're asking them for their time, especially when it comes to the lawyer, it's worth that hour or two for them to understand your business. And then the next question you have is, what should I be doing that you see other business owners doing and why? And I think if you, because that way you can use their experience, because the value that a lawyer, an accountant, or a mentor has is that they're not in a silo like you are. Your silo is your business, but they're seeing tons and tons and tons of other businesses. So they see it all. 
And that experience that they bring to the table to me is what you're paying them the money for. And uh, so I think that's a good thing for you to do is go back to your lawyer, go back to your accountant, go back to your mentors and say, this is how my business is running. This is where we are financially. What type of problems should I be worried about coming forward? What type of things should I be doing now? Um, Andrew, would you agree with that type of assessment? Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that's the value that the professional advisors can bring is, you know, it's important for us. And the most important thing I try and do is put my shoes in my client, my feet in my client's shoes, understand their business. And only by understanding their business is then I, I can advise them. Um, and you know, based on my experience and like you said, a lot of us have seen it all. And so we know the pitfalls. We know the issues that are likely to come up that they haven't even thought of. Yep. And so the key is how do we prevent that happening to them? And what do we got to do to do that? And that's the key. Yeah. I would also say too, it's a little less different with the, I, I think it's important for all the people I mentioned, uh, the lawyers, the accountants and your mentors, uh, Sometimes business is just rolling and you don't talk to your them much. You, I mean, you mentioned that you should probably talk to your, your lawyer on a, on a quarterly basis. Uh, I think, you know, you should be talking to at least everybody on a yearly basis and letting them know what's going on in your business. Like your, your accountant will only know what's going on from the financial standpoint, but maybe you're looking into, you know, uh, going into another line of business. Maybe you're looking into going after another market. Maybe you're looking and working in a different state. Um, you know, tell your uh, lo- your professionals that you work with what's coming down the tr- the track. What what you know what went on. What's going to go forward? And I think that's you know, especially with a lawyer, because sometimes you cannot really you don't need to kind of bring your lawyer sometimes in until there's a problem. And sometimes you don't have any problems in your business. Um, but you know, if you're, if you've gone from three employees to 20 employees, probably a good, a good idea to say to your, uh, your lawyer, Hey, you know, I I did that. I went from, you know, uh, 15 employees to 110. Right. And so we, we needed to get, um, um, things buttoned up when it came to employment, uh, practices, so, um, especially because I had an employment lawyer who specialized in that because it, it was a complicated business with, when it came to employment stuff. So, um, a- Andrew, any other last thoughts before we, we, we wrap it up for today? No, I, I think you hit everything. The key, I would just remind, you know, all the listeners is talk to your advisors, um, keep them informed as what's going on because th- they can only help you when they know, and you shouldn't assume that they know what's going on with your business. And it's important to be proactive and preventive in order to avoid any of the horror stories you may have heard from other friends and family in business. Good. Very good. So I'd like to thank so very much uh, for Andrew Swartz from Stein Sperling for coming on to today's uh, podcast. If you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend and also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Please also give us a review. It really helps us get the word out. Uh, they use that as the algorithm to determine uh, where we rank. And, you know, we're in the top 5% of the podcasts for entrepreneurship. So we're proud of that. 
And if you're looking for a line of credit for your business, please give us a call at 862-207-4118 or visit our website at fscreditline.com. That's FS as in Financing Solutions, creditline.com. Andrew, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Yes, they can visit our website at Stein, S-T-E-I-N, Sperling, S-P-E-R-L-I-N-G.com, SteinSperling.com. They can also reach me at 301-838-3327. That is my direct number. And also email me at aschwartz at SteinSperling.com, aschwartz at SteinSperling.com. Very good. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. So just as a wrap up, I think I'm going to reiterate something I said toward the end. It is bring your lawyer, accountant, and mentors more into your business. Let them know what's going on. Pick their brains. They've been there before. They'll help you in the future. Have a great day, everybody.